Well, thank you so much, uh, Jeff, for that kind invitation. It's great to uh, be with you this um, beautiful day in uh, Detroit, you know? <laughs> so it's really not much different in Louisville, where I came from. Um, so, man, the Lord the Lord has blessed. It's great to see uh, you brothers. I, as he was reading that, I thought, you know, just life goes on. Now I have eight grandchildren, you know? The, the numbers just keep coming. So what a blessing. So... Um, what I want to talk about, uh, in the, the title there is Meditating on the Warnings in Scripture. I don't know if we're going to be meditating so much as considering in this first session. This first session, mainly I just want to give you a lot of texts. And, uh, and then the second session today, I want to propose a resolution, uh, an explanation of those texts. And then, I, and of course, I know you won't all be able to come to the... Um, the breakout session I'm doing, but that breakout session uh, that I'm doing would speak to some misunderstandings of what I'm saying. So, you know, I have, uh, what, what are these texts, what are these texts, what, how do I understand them, what am I not saying? You know, sometimes, because actually what I'm talking about here comes out of our book, The Race Set Before Us, some of the responses we got, some of the misunderstandings. I actually thought, I still believe, that we dealt with those misunderstandings in the book, but, but people needed to hear those kind of things again. So I just want to begin by saying, what do we say to a person when they first become a Christian? What's, what's, what, what words do we tell them? I mean, of course, we tell them a lot of things. I remember when I was a, a young and new believer, uh, I prayed with uh, someone in our house for her to become a believer, and I communicated to her what I had been taught. And what I communicated to her was this. I said, now you're a Christian. Uh, basically, no matter what you do, you're saved. You're saved, and you're going to uh, you're going to belong to the Lord forever. However, two or three years later, she divorced her husband, and we we, I was, we were very close with this couple. We spent a lot of time with them, so it wasn't as a distant person. I never saw again. Two or three year, years later, she divorced her husband. She renounced the faith. As far as I know, I mean, this is years ago now. As far as I know, I've lost track of her. She's never, uh, she's never turned away from that. So, you know, I've often thought of that event. Uh, what, do, what do we say to a believer, to a new believer? And, of course, we see in the New Testament itself an answer to that question. So just a series of texts here, Acts. So if your fingers are nimble, right? But Acts, Acts chapter 11, verse 23, Acts 11, verse 23, this is, this is in Syrian Antioch. You know, they're, the, the Gentiles are becoming Christians, and they're new Christians, and they send Barnabas up. And what does Barnabas say to these new Christians? When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So what does he say? He says to them, remain faithful uh, to the Lord. Acts 13, 43, two chapters down the road. Again, this is, this is Paul and Barnabas now. And this is instead of Syrian Antioch, this is Pisidian Antioch in modern-day Turkey. And uh, again, they, they have just preached the gospel in the synagogue, and there are new believers there. And, and, and we realize one of the things we have to consider here is Luke is very abbreviated, isn't he? And, this, what we find in the scriptures is very compact because obviously they said a lot more than we get here. <laughs> but so, so he clearly Luke's just boiling down for us the most important things. And so after Acts 13 verse 43, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who as they spoke with them urged them to continue and the grace of God. I mean, basically the same thing, isn't it? I'll remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose in 11.23. Continue in the grace of God in 
13, 43. 14, chapter 14, verse 22, Paul and Barnabas revisit. They revisit the churches they planted on that first missionary journey. And we read there that they went through the cities. They strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So, you know, Luke doesn't give us many descriptions of what they said to new believers, and so I think it's of great significance. It's not hard to understand, is it? But it's of great significance that this is repeated over and over again. And then and then from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Again, we have, this is a newly planted congregation. Some people think this letter was written, what, six months after Paul left. So uh, they, they hadn't been believers long. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. That's a big sacrifice for Paul, right, to be lonely in Athens. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Remember Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So isn't that interesting? What did he say to these new believers? It's not going to be easy, he said. And verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Isn't that a remarkable statement? That Paul says, I wondered if your faith was genuine. At least I had a fear in my heart. And, of course, that question is resolved for Paul from the report he hears from Timothy. But I think that's rather similar to what we see in Acts. So what do we say to new Christians? We say continue in the faith, right? My next point. It's the same thing we say to all Christians, right? That's what we say to new Christians, but we say it to all Christians. First Peter chapter 5, verse 12. So I worked several years or a couple of years. I can't remember the timing anymore on a commentary on First Peter. And many commentators say that verse 12 sums up the whole book. I think, I think that's probably right. So, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, you know, summing up the whole letter, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So, that's, what is this letter about? You know, it's about the true grace of God. If you're not seeing the true grace of God in First Peter, you're not interpreting it correctly. He tells us himself. But then what does he say? Stand firm in it. Stand firm in that grace. Summing up the whole letter is, what does he say to these people who have been Christians for a while? Stand in grace. Jude 20, 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. So there's an exhortation, right? What does he say? To keep yourselves in God's love. And we could look at other texts as well. I want to segue from here, from these exhortations, to the warning passages. What I want to do here, I'm just going to hit you with a battery of texts. I mean, you know these texts. I'm not, I'm not saying anything surprising. I'm not trying to say anything surprising. But I could just look at Hebrews, and I am going to talk about Hebrews. But I want to go, I want to go beyond Hebrews because one of my aims is for you to see that these warning passages are pervasive in the scriptures, focusing on the New Testament. But first, let's look at a typology. Let's, let's look at a schema. Let's have a little legend of the different views of the warning passages. So, first of all, the Arminian view. What, is, what, what do Arminians say about the warnings? Arminians say that the warnings are addressed to believers, that they're about salvation, and that believers can 
abandon or forsake or lose. Scott McKnight doesn't like the word lose because lose sounds like it's kind of accidental, right? So Scott would say abandon or forsake. So I'm trying to be fair to them. Their salvation. So one thing I want to say, I'm I'm assuming this is kind of a Reformed group. I'm Reformed. I'm a five-point Calvinist. Um, That's not what he asked me to talk about, but that's true. (laughs) And that's not what I am going to talk about. But um, I I think it's important to say Arminianism, I think, rightly conceived as within the circle of orthodoxy. You know, we have, a, we have a long lineage of church history. You can see some of the early church fathers were Arminian. Now, Arminianism, of course, is an anachronism because he came along far, far later, didn't he? So, but I always like to say this. This is an orthodox option, an option I view as defective. It's defective, but it's not heretical. That's a very important distinction. We could talk about that at some point if you want to. So then the second view that I want to mention is the free grace view. I take it you're familiar with that group. They published the Grace Evangelical Journal. I think that's what it's called. It's the Grace Evangelical Society. Zane Hodges, Robert Wilkin, um, in terms of Hebrews, Randall Gleason. Uh, it's, it's, It's quite popular in some circles. The free grace view argues that the warnings are addressed to believers but they take all the warning passages not to relate to salvation, but to rewards. So all these passages are about rewards. So you can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your rewards. So that, that's quite popular in some circles as well. Then uh, in, in terms of Hebrews, probably Hebrews more in particular, this third view really zeroes in on Hebrews, but I mention it here. You could apply it to other passages. But we're especially thinking of Hebrews 6 when I talk about this third group. The third group you could call, I've called the tests of genuineness view, or you could call it the almost believers view in Hebrews 6, you know, where it says you're enlightened, you've tasted the heavenly gift, and so forth and so on, that they're not quite believers, but they're almost believers. The issue is still salvation, but for this reading, the conclusion is they, they, they fell away because they never were saved in the first place. So what, what makes this view distinct, you know, the free grace view is, is different and it's the only view out there. The free grace view is the only view out there that says this passage isn't about salvation but about rewards. The almost Christian view is distinct in that they say they're not Christians, Right? It's the only view that argues that. Well, maybe I shouldn't. It depends on how you assess this next view. So the next, the last view I want to mention is the federal vision vision view. If you're familiar with the federal vision, I'm thinking especially of Doug Wilson and his ministry. Although a lot of Presbyterians would fit in this view, but not all. Uh, so the federal vision view would say that the warnings are addressed to those who are in the covenant. And it's about salvation, but those who fall away from the covenant, those who fall away the uh, those who fall away are cut off from God's covenantal blessings. Although although Wilson and others who espouse this view do not say that you're losing your salvation. You're just you're losing you're, you you lose your your covenantal uh, blessing. So that's just a little you know typology of views out there. I don't hold to any of these views. I, I hold to a view that I'm going to call the means of salvation view. But but first, all I want to do now the rest of this hour, which uh, I, I hope is helpful to you, um, I just want to read the morning passages. Why why do I do it this way? Because well, I just want us to hear. You know, I just want to hear the pervasiveness of these warnings, and I want us to us to to realize it's part of the warp and the woof of the New Testament. And the reason I say that is, so many people, in my experience, when we talk about this, they they just run right away to Hebrews. How do you resolve Hebrews? What do you do with Hebrews? And, and of course, that's an important question, isn't it? And I'm going to talk talk about Hebrews, but. But I want to say it's a much larger question. 
And it doesn't just relate to Hebrews, but to scores of texts in the New Testament. In other words, you know, you're, I take it, those of you out here, you're veterans, you know this, but a lot of people, they don't really see these warnings. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's an, an amazing thing to me. Um, just, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell a story here. Maybe you don't share my sentiments, but I was talking to, I was talking to, you know, a friend once, and he, he said, "So, what's the one, the first point of the five points of Calvinism that you, if you were to give up one, which is uh, per- <laughs> perish the thought? But anyway, if you were to give up one, which one would you give up first?" And I said, "Oh." Perseverance. Because <laughs> I said there's so many warnings in Scripture. And he, like, he just looked at me like I was crazy. I mean, because why? Because we have all these people out there. That's the only point they hold. <laughs> so, which is massively inconsistent, really, isn't it? But that's another story. We could talk about that sometime. So, um, so, so many people don't think of this way and, and think this way. And then another person, professor, I won't say a name, but... I heard him say, I can't even imagine why any Christian could even think it's possible that you could lose your salvation. And I just thought, have you never read those warning passages? Well, he has for years. And I just realized, okay, you read them with completely different spectacles on. If you don't even think that that other view is possible, I, I, it, was, it was almost shocking to me. Like, but, but I think what happens is when we read texts, right, all of us, we, we all have spectacles on and we read them in a certain way. So here we go. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. So what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to pick some texts. I could pick so many. I'm trying to pick texts from different parts of the New Testament. To make my case. So Matthew chapter 10 verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I mean there's an implicit warning there isn't there? You must endure to the end to be saved. How many people when they read this text reverse the grammar? The one who is saved will endure to the end. That's not what this text says. This text has a different emphasis. Of course, that other is true. I believe the other. But that's not what this verse says. So we're called upon, aren't we, as readers of text. We're all in process. I'm in process. But we're always called upon, as Adolf Schlatter said, to see what's there. And we tend not to see what's there because our theology, which is good, right? It's good to have a theology. I, I, don't, I don't advocate the view we should come to the text with blank slates. Nobody does anyway. But we still need to attend to what's before us. And this is a call to endure. The one who endures the end will be saved on the last day. That salvation there is eschatological, isn't it? It's future. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, just 10 verses down the road. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So a lot of times people ask me, what's your view of the warning passages? And I say to them, what did Jesus say? If you deny me, I'll deny you. There's my view. (laughs) It's really quite simple. Jesus said, if you deny me, I'll deny you. And he was dead serious when he said that. If you deny Jesus, he'll deny you forever before his father. Jesus wasn't, uh, wasn't joking when he said that. He, was, he meant what he said. A few verses down the road, Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Praise the Lord for the grace of the gospel. Praise the Lord that we're justified by faith alone and through grace alone. But that grace 
works in our hearts so that we give ourselves entirely to Jesus Christ. So that there is a radical, not a perfect, right? That's my session tomorrow. So that there's a radical change in our lives. And some people think if we talk, start talking this way, that we're somehow uh, subscribing to legalism. But I'm just trying to be faithful to what Jesus says here in terms of the radical commitment. You know, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who grew up as a Lutheran, and which emphasized rightly so much the grace of God. Well, what was Bonhoeffer worried about? Cheap grace. Cheap grace. And so Bonhoeffer, who was really emphasized the grace of God in Jesus Christ, called people to what? Costly discipleship. Costly discipleship. So, so that's, you know, we could look at many verses in the synoptics. I just want to, and I pick out one from the Gospel of John. And of course, I could pick out many more. But John 15, verse 6. If anyone, John 15, 6, very, you know, the vine and the branches passage, very familiar with it. If anyone does not abide in me, if anyone doesn't remain in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So if, if, if a person doesn't remain and abide in Jesus, wh- what does he mean? I think he means you're, you're judged, uh, you're cut off from the vine, you're, you, you're, you're destroyed, you, you go to hell. You're burned, ultimately. It's a picture of judgment in John 15, 6. Well, well I, hurry, I hurry on to Paul. And Galatians chapter 5, right? The whole issue in Galatians is circumcision necessary for salvation. And of course, Paul says no, doesn't he? It's so fascinating in Galatians. He actually doesn't tackle that issue specifically. He doesn't, he doesn't tackle the presenting issue for the church directly and specifically till chapter 5, verse 2. Isn't that fascinating? You know, first he gives them lots of theology, because before he deals with the question before the church, he's got to build that foundation. So we're, we're going right to the where he deals with it, Galatians 5, verse 2. So for the first time, after four chapters, right, here we go. This is what Paul says, look or behold, so a, 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 solemn, a solemn introduction. I, Paul, say to you. So, you know, that, that kind of introduction, he calls attention He calls the readers to attention and says, this is very important, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage or no benefit to you, which I think means no saving benefit to you. It's it's one or the other. If you accept circumcision, Christ cannot benefit you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law which I'm not here to explain that verse, but I think he's saying just briefly, you'd have to keep the law perfectly to be saved, which is impossible. Verse 4, verse 4, you have, I, I, I think ought to be interpreted in the context as part of the warning. I do not think he's saying in verse 4 that they've already fallen prey to what he's warning about here. So he says, and I'm just reading the English here, but you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. If you receive circumcision, you're cut off from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. You're, you're not a believer, I think he's saying. So Paul's not saying, you know, it's okay. It's okay if you, if you uh, move in this direction. No, it isn't okay. I had uh, years ago, you know, just as I was taught, one of, uh, one of the students... Uh, at our church at Clifton Baptist, and he was very evangelistic. Praise God for that. He wrote a little gospel tract, and he showed it to me. And in that gospel tract, he included, once a person is saved, he wrote, once you're saved, you're saved no matter what you do. (laughs) And he showed it to me, and I just said to him, you know, this this is really good, but take that out. (laughs) Take that out, because I go, the Bible never says that. The Bible never talks like that. The Bible instead talks like this. So it talks in a different way than you talk. You, you, you've appropriated a certain theology that's popular, 
but doesn't it fit with Scripture? Well, Romans chapter 11, verse 19. So here, here we have, you know, Jews and Gentiles together, joined together in the olive tree, one people of God, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and uh, he speaks to the Gentile believers in Romans chapter 11, verse 19. Then you will say, you Gentiles, branches, Jewish branches, were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true, Paul says. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. That's amazing words, aren't they? Otherwise, if you don't continue in his kindness, if you don't remain in the faith, you will be cut off from the tree. Paul warns them, right, in a, in, a, in a very severe way. Clearly, he's talking about salvation. And he clearly says, if you don't continue, you're going to be cut off from the tree. Well, many other texts. Um, I'm going to skip some, just even looking at the clock here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. By, by the way, I love that part. Well, the works of the flesh, they're so unclear. What are they? We're so uncertain. No, he says they're obvious, right? The works of the flesh are evident. You don't have to be brilliant to understand what the works of the flesh are. So if you, if you, think, if you think anything in there is uh, uh, questionable, something's wrong with you spiritually, right? Verse 21, we drop down to verse 21. I warn you. This is the book of Galatians. The grace of God is featured. I warn you. As I warned you before, that those who do such things those who practice the works of the flesh, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice the works of the flesh, very strong warning, will not be saved. Which clearly, since I don't have time to talk about you know my, my other little breakout, clearly I'm not talking about perfection. Can I say that? You know, there's, there's more I could say on that point. We're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about a new kind of life, certainly. Colossians chapter 1, after the great Christ hymn, verse 21, And you who, are, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. When does that presentation take place? I would argue it's on the last day. On the last day, he will present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But then he says, if he'll present you holy and blameless and, and without reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith. By the way, some people want to turn that if into a sense. And there is a, a little cottage industry out there in some Greek commentaries where they turn the ifs in the senses and I, and I don't think that's ever grammatically warranted. I think that the ifs are there for a reason. Other people have written on this, I think, that verify what I'm saying. Because it is kind of popular to do that. Now, sometimes an if, just a quick grammatical point, sometimes an if is written in such a way that the writer wants you to read about that condition and to say, I fulfill it. So I see why people put sense there, but still rhetorically, I think the if is there for a reason, if that makes sense. So anyway, but clearly we have an if here. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So he'll present you holy and above reproach if you continue, but not if you don't continue. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. The saying is trustworthy. If we deny him, I'm just picking up verse 12, 2 Timothy 2, 12. I'm just picking up that part. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Well, clearly, Paul there is alluding to Jesus' teaching 
uh, which is, I mean, this is something that's quite interesting to me, how the New Testament writers tend to allude to, but don't quote a lot the teaching of Jesus. So, because sometimes people ask, well, did the teaching of Jesus influence the writers of the New Testament? There's actually quite a few allusions to Jesus' teaching. So, if we deny him, he'll also, he will also deny us. So, I'll just tell you a little story here of a dear friend of mine. When I was at Fuller Seminary uh, years ago, I started teaching a little Bible study. He started to come. He, this young guy, I mean, I was young then too. It was a long time ago. Uh, this guy, this guy um, professed faith in Jesus Christ when Mount St. Helens blew, which was what, May something, 1980. I was in, I was in Portland, Oregon at the time. But the, it, it all blew east and I was a little south, so I didn't see it that day. A beautiful sunny day in Portland. But this guy was in the middle of the ashes falling and he thought it was the end of the world. <laughs> It's like I believe. So he became he became a very he became a very zealous evangelist. Um, he was a very bold person. He talked to a lot of people about Jesus. Um, he got married. Uh, his wife was in our Bible study as well. He eventually moved up north, out out of Southern California, and. Um, but, you know, he, we, I had talked to him some about his marriage when he was in Southern California. I had since moved to Minnesota. But he, he called me one day, years ago now, and uh, he said, I'm leaving my wife. I'm leaving my kids. And, uh, you know, he was a very dear friend. I'll just call him Jim. That's not his name. And I just said, you know, wow. I mean, he knew I loved him, and I said, "Man, Brad, whoops, I'm there in the name. I love you so much." And but what what's going on? And he basically told me, "I'm leaving my wife because, and I'm going with this other girl because me and my wife we don't have good sex." And I and with other with this other girl leaving his kids and everything. And I just said to him, "I said, so you're." I said his name. I said, "So you're." You're willing to go to hell for sex. That's what, that's what you're willing to do. And um, I've never heard from him since. I don't know. I mean, is there, there hope for him? I think there's hope as long as he's alive. But, I mean, I didn't say to him, you know, well, that's okay. I mean, none of, none of us would say it's okay. But I didn't say to him, you're saved, you know. Well, you're saved at least. You know, you're a zealous witness for Christ. And none of that means anything, Right? If you just turn away from Jesus in such a remarkable way, and um, every time I tell that story, it makes me sad when I think of him, just a very dear friend, and the decision uh, he he made. Anyway, Second Peter chapter one. So we move from Paul to Peter. I just have one text here, but Second Peter. There's a lot of texts we could talk about, but Second Peter verses five through eleven. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. We're very familiar with this, right? He goes through all those virtues because of time. I won't read them all. But verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a, first came to Southern Seminary, I was talking to a dear friend who was a colleague, and I said, I read that verse to him, and I said, or quoted it to him, and I said to him, you know, sometimes that verse makes me nervous, because are those qualities increasing in me? And he said to me, that's why it's so good to know, Tom, that Christ is our righteousness. And I said, yes, I agree with that, but... What does this verse mean? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I totally agree. Christ is our righteousness. We can never forget that. But we can't wipe out this verse. <laughs> we can't just say that and then move on. This verse also plays a role in our understanding of things. And I think this is a warning. For over lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to make your calling and action sure by practicing these virtues, right? 
For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall or you will never stumble. But by which I don't think he means you'll never sin. Of course we all sin. But you'll never fall away. You'll never commit apostasy. So I think this passage is about apostasy. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance. We're talking about entering the new creation, going to heaven, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Second John chapter 1, verse 7. Second John, the, uh, you know, Second John, from what we can see, is very similar to First John in that we have a problem with docetism in the, in the churches. That is, they don't fully, they don't confess, they don't confess that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. They don't think Jesus is fully human. Anyway, verse 7 through 9 of Second John, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. There's the docetism, right? Very clearly. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Now, some people say, well, see, this passage is about rewards above and beyond eternal life as a distinct category. Because he says, watch that you don't lose, but may win a full reward. What, what does he have in mind? Watch yourself that you don't fall into this Christological heresy, right, in context. But we see from verse 9 that the reward in view is eternal life itself in context. He says, watch out. Watch out that you may not lose what you have, but you'll get the full reward. Well, what is that in verse 9? Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. Everyone who's progressive, right? That's the word to go ahead even. Everyone who's very progressive and progresses out of Orthodox Christology and does not abide in the teaching of Christ doesn't have God. They're not a Christian, right? So what's, what's the reward you lose? It's eternal life here. What can be clearer? Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Can I, now, here's a complaint. Of, the, of all the views I mentioned, the, problem, the view I have the most problems with is the free grace view. And the reason I have the most problems with the free grace view is I think that the texts are just so clear in this matter. And they practice what I call, I know this offends them, but I'm just going to say it. They practice what I call can't lose exegesis. They practice it because every text you show them like this, they'll say, well, you know, um, doesn't have God there, doesn't refer to eternal life. Because if there's ever a warning that relates to eternal life, they just explain it away. In every case, Revelation, and then I'll do Hebrews, and then we'll, we'll have a little break. What about Revelation? Well, Revelation, we have a ton of passages, don't we? We're not surprised. What, what's, what's the fundamental purpose of the whole book? The fundamental purpose is persevere to the end, to a suffering church. So there's scores of passages we could look at. But let's look at the overcoming passages. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. This is, of course, written to the church of Ephesus. And he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, right? Nekao. Uh, to the one who conquers, I will grant to you the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So clearly, you must overcome to eat of the tree of life, that's eternal life, right? Which is in paradise. So he's saying to the Ephesian church, this isn't optional, is it? You, you must do this. You must do this to receive the final reward. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, which is to the next church, right? He who has an ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, what's the second death? The lake of fire. So the one who, the one who doesn't conquer, right, will be hurt by the second death. The one who doesn't conquer will go to the lake of fire. So this, this call to overcome, this call to conquer, this call to persevere, it's not optional, is it? It's absolutely vital. You have to do it. Clearly by the grace of God, ultimately. 
But Revelation chapter 3 verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. There we see it again. If you, if you, if you uh, confess Jesus, he'll confess you. Now, just some, just a word about the warnings in Hebrews. A couple things I want to say. What's Hebrews all about? Hebrews is tough for people, right? But I like to say, picking up from chapter 13, verse 22, remember Hebrews, although it's written by a brilliant person. I mean, the Greek is beautiful. This person is a very educated, gifted person who wrote this letter. And, um, but it's a sermon. It's a very well-crafted sermon. Chapter 13, verse 22, he calls it a word of exhortation. Uh, you know, for those of you who know Greeks, lagos, parakleseos, which is the very phrase used in Acts chapter 13, verse 15, of Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch. The, the, the person says, do you have a word of exhortation for us? And so, so Hebrews talks about his word of exhortation. I like, I like to... Uh, Consider it as a sermon because it's fundamentally practical. All that theology in the book, which is fabulous, serves, right? It serves the exhortations. All all that theology serves the warning passages. And there are five different panels, five different places where we have warning passages, right? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 13. That's a very long section, isn't it? Chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse... I mean, where do you stop it? Do you stop it at verse 8 or verse 12? doesn't really matter for our purposes, right? Pretty long warning section. Then when you come to chapter 10, I think chapter 10 is the hardest one to decide where you end it. But let's just say... Let's just say 10, 26 through 31. But you could actually almost include, you could almost go 10, 26 into chapter 12, like almost one big warning passage. But we'll just say chapter 10, 26 through 31. And then chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. Five warning passages. That's the purpose of the book. Don't, what, what is Hebrews about? Don't fall away. Very simple message. But he tells them five different times, doesn't he? Well, that's a good preacher. He has a theme and he you, he expresses it different ways, right? His main point. It's sort of like, you know, shaking a kaleidoscope, right? You shake a kaleidoscope, you have one angle, shake it again. You have another angle, shake it again, another angle, shake it again. But it's the same picture, right? Just from different angles. Well, that's what the author is doing. So Scott McKnight, Scott's an Arminian. He wrote an article on the warning passages in Hebrews in Trinity Journal in the late 80s. I think it's, by the way, an outstanding article. I think he's wrong about being Arminian. Uh, I'll say more about that later, the next hour. But one of the things Scott says that I think is so helpful and that many, many interpreters, many Reformed interpreters ignore, and that is this. All the warning passages mutually interpret one another. It's it's one letter. He's not trying to say something different in chapter 2 than he is in chapter 3 than he's doing in chapter 10 and 12 and 6. All of them serve the same purpose. This is a sermon. This is not a theological treatise. He He's urging the readers, what? Not to fall away. Therefore, we ought to take the passages together. They ought to be read synoptically, in other words each one informing the others. That's really, really helpful. And the, and the other thing I like about it, it's simple, right? The, 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 fundamentally, what the author wants to do when he writes the letter is communicate. He wants to be clear. He's not trying to um, puzzle the readers. He's trying to get them to move. Okay, so having said that, I just want to hear these warnings and make a couple comments. I'm not going to read the whole thing, right? But I'll read I'll read uh, good bits of each one, and then we'll, then we'll have a break. And then I'll come back next hour. I'll explain how I understand these passages. So let's listen to 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we, 
the author includes himself to what we have heard, lest we drift away. And there's the sin, right? Drifting away. It's like a, a, a ship in the harbor and slowly drifting out to sea, right? Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? So that's, that's the judgment, right? How shall we escape if we, if we neglect such a great salvation? So the word he uses there is escape. But notice, very much along with what Hebrews does, you have a typology between the earthly and the heavenly. If, if Israel received earthly punishments under the law, that's the angels there, right? How will we escape if we, uh, we who have received the heavenly message? See that earthly, heavenly typology that informs Hebrews again and again. Okay, chapter 3. We'll pick it up at verse 12. Therefore, take care, brothers. He's addressing the brothers, right? And sisters, of course. Lest there be in any of you, what's, what's the sin? An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. So there's the sin. I think that's apostasy. Actually, it's the Greek word aphistemi. We get our word apostasy from it, right? You can, you can almost hear it. Aphistemi, apostasy, apostani is the exact word there with the infinitive, so you can kind of hear apostasy in it. Leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, you know, if anybody in our churches is saying, you know, I don't need to keep coming to church. I've heard all this for years. <laughs> you know, well, what, what, what does it say? We need to be exhorted every day. Uh, and there's, always, there's a danger of getting hard. There's a danger of getting hard when we get old. That's a danger for me and you. We can't say, well, of course, I'm exempt from this. I've been a Christian for so long. For, for, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden. There's the sin again, right? Your hearts. As in the rebellion, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? There's the sin, rebelled. Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? So that's very interesting. That It's clearly speaking of heavenly rest. But to those who are disobedient. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. There's the sin again, right? What's the sin? It's disobedience. It's unbelief. It's rebelling. It's hardening your heart. Described different ways. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, that's the final reward, isn't it? Isn't, isn't that... So I think this is a problem with the free grace view. Isn't that eternal life? Entering rest. He's not talking about losing rewards. He's talking about entering rest. Right? It was the land in the Old Covenant, but now typologically it points to our heavenly rest. So that's a huge problem with the free grace view, I think. Let us fear, let us fear, he includes himself now, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Well, I could keep reading this passage, but I think we see the main point. Then I'm going to jump to Hebrews 10, just because I'm going to do Hebrews 6 last. For if we go on sinning deliberately, this is chapter 10, verse 26, chapter 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, that, that verse has, confuses a lot of people. But he's talking about the Old Testament, right? Sinning with the high hand. Defiant sin. In the Old Testament, there's no forgiveness for that. And there isn't in the New Testament either. Right? This is another way of talking about the blasphemy of the Spirit. This is, so, what confuses us when we read this passage is we start to think, well... I deliberately sinned in whatever I did. 
right? All our sins are deliberate. But that's not what he has in mind, especially when you, when you read the whole book. What he's talking about is what my friend did when he said, I'm turning my back on Jesus, and I'm going to go sleep with this other girl, right? He's talking about something quite obvious, right? You know, we, 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 I, I'm, I'm speaking, you know, I'm not speaking really of the per- function of the warnings here, but we, we just disciplined someone in our church. Why? Because they quit attending. And we said to him, go to another church in town. There's a lot of good churches in town. You don't like us anymore? We're fallible. <laughs> We're weak. We think you should stay with us, but you don't want to stay with us? Okay, don't stay with us. There are lots of other good churches. No, I won't go to any church. Well, right? That's sinning deliberately, isn't it? He wouldn't go to any church. And we, we, it, we, we waited over a year. We gave him tons of time. We wouldn't do it. So finally, we just removed him. We, we didn't want to. So this is the, so sinning deliberately, in, in this context, how were they sinning deliberately? What's the warning? The warning is if they left Jesus and returned to Judaism, that's forsaking Jesus. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no, there's no forgiveness for you is what that means, right? There's, if there's no longer a sacrifice, there's no forgiveness. But there's a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Real problem with the free grace view there, right? <laughs> I mean, that's losing rewards? That's, that language is way too strong. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Notice the typology again. Earthly punishment under Moses, but how much worse it is when there's a heavenly punishment. How does he describe the sin? Literally, that word spurn means to trample under feet. Jesus is the Son of God. What a powerful expression. To, pro- to profane the blood of the covenant, to consider the blood of the covenant unclean, to consider it to be like a menstrual cloth, right? That, it's, that's the kind of expression he has in mind here. And it was outraged the spirit of grace. Are, could you seriously think this passage is just about losing rewards? It, it, it just boggles my mind. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, a very, very strong warning. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him. So there's, there's the sin, refusing him. For they did not escape, by the way, that's what chapter 2 says, the word escape. When they refused him, there's the sin, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him. There's the sin who warns from heaven. So again, right? I hope you see these passages are very synoptic. He's, he's returning to terms he used earlier. And again, we have that typological relationship between old covenant earthly punishments, and now it's escalated. It's escalated to heavenly punishments. Okay. Hebrews 6, and then we'll take a break. Just a quick word here on Hebrews 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, para pipto, para pasantas, which clearly, I think, means apostasy, despite David Allen's commentary in the Knack series. But David Allen is a free grace reader, so he labors to show that the word fall away doesn't really mean apostasy. And he actually appeals to Ezekiel 18 to support his case, because parapipto for fall away is often used there. But actually, when you look at Ezekiel 18, the sinner who turns away from the Lord will die. So I think it's a completely bogus reading. I love David Allen, by the way. He's, you know, he's a wonderful person and a wonderful Christian. But hey, I think it's just wrong. 
So we, we got to say that. I think it's a, a very wrong way of reading it. It's, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Here's another evidence we're talking about salvation because we're talking about repentance, which is the typical word used, right? You must believe and repent to be saved. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. So the language used is incredibly strong. I don't, I don't think he's saying that if you commit the sin, that's, you can, you're still a believer. You're crucifying Jesus. And you're holding him up to contempt. Contempt. Now, just a quick word. The almost Christian view says, look, these people were very close to being believers. It's very close to being believers, but they're not quite believers. They've, been, they, they've had a little bit of knowledge, and they've sipped Right? Taste means sip, right? You know, you, you can do that often and, you know, you go to an ice cream parlor and have a little taste of uh, something. So they tasted the heavenly gift. They've had a little sip of these things. They tasted the goodness. They sipped the t- goodness of God's word. They sipped the powers of the age to come. They've had some experiences of the Holy Spirit, but they're not saved. That's John Calvin's reading. That's uh, John Owen's reading. That's John Gill's reading. That's Roger Nicole's reading, if you know that name. Uh, the, the most recent advocate of that view in any detail is uh, Wayne Grudem. And uh, w- by the way, I mean, Wayne, Wayne and I are very dear friends. I love Wayne. Uh, and Wayne and I know each other well. But I don't think, I don't think that reading is convincing. I don't, I don't think these are talking about almost Christians. I don't, I don't think that fits with... Um, I don't think that fits with the other warning passages. I don't think it fits with chapter 6. So, first of all, the word enlightened in chapter 10, verse 32, after you have been enlightened, same word, he says, you endured a great conflict of sufferings in chapter 10, verse 32. And you were willing even to have your possessions robbed. So I think that he's clearly saying after you became Christians in chapter 10, verse 32. Furthermore, I'm not convinced that the word tasted means sipped. Why not? Hebrews only uses the verb taste in one other occasion. And it says Jesus tasted death. Hebrews 2.9. Did he sip it? Just a little bit? A little, little bit of death? No, no. He, he swallowed it all the way down. He ingested it. So um, I don't think taste here, if we use the, this very author, taste doesn't mean a, 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 a little experience of death. And sharers of the Holy Spirit. Sharers of the Holy Spirit is speaking of participating in the Spirit. It says, same word, Jesus shared in flesh and blood. Just a little bit? (laughs) Flesh and blood? Or did he really share in flesh and blood? He says right before this, you partake of milk. Is he saying just sipping milk? That's not what the word means. The word means to be a sharer. In fact, Grudem says, look, he could have said 18 other things by which you would really know this person were a Christian. He could have said, you're forgiven of your sins. I'm not going to go through all 18. He could have said, you're sanctified. Actually, I think he does say they're sanctified. Chapter 10, verse 29, <laughs> and so forth and so on. But I would say the clearest thing you can say in the Bible, the clearest thing you can say in the Bible that one is a Christian is you've got the Holy Spirit. When Paul, when, when Paul wants to convince the Galatians that they're Christians and they don't have to be circumcised to be saved, what does he say? How did you receive the Spirit? By works of law or by hearing with faith. At the Apostolic Council in Acts 15, when they're deciding whether circumcision is required to be saved, what do they depend on? Peter says, of course they don't have to be circumcised because they've received the Holy Spirit. So to be saying you're a share of the Holy Spirit is saying you're a Christian. So I'm just not, you know, I, I greatly respect that view, the almost Christian view, as I respect the Arminian reading as well, as I've already said. But I don't think it's the right reading here. For land that is, verse 7, land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bores thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. The free grace people say, see, you just lose your reward. Your crops are burned up, right? Look at it. If it produces a crop, you receive a blessing. If you have thorns and thistles, it's ruined. But that's not what the text actually says. What's burned? It's the land, not just the crops. That's important, right? 
What's worthless? And by the way, that word worthless, adakamas, always in the New Testament refers to damnation. It's worthless. It's unqualified. And it's near to being cursed, near, not spatially, not like you just got by, but temporally. The curse is coming. And it is going to come. And its end is to be burned. You'll be destroyed. So I take it, that is a very strong warning. So just to sum up this part, I think these warnings are saying, I think Hebrews 6 is saying, but I think all these passages are saying, if you turn away from Jesus, if you apostatize, if you deny Jesus, you're going to go to hell. And I'm arguing those warnings are for us. That warning is for me. And that warning is for you. And our churches are less strong if we don't preach that. Our churches are less strong and and we rob people of one of God's means of grace if we don't preach that powerfully and well. Let's pray.